Hey, everybody, this is Lucky Episode 13 and the first podcast of 2018 for Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring artists from the Triangle region of North Carolina talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Happy New Year, Soapboxers! I'm so looking forward to spending 2018 with you. In this episode, I'm speaking with Aurelia Belfield, music and casting supervisor and sound coordinator. We'll learn more about Aurelia's super cool work in the entertainment industry and her passion for accessibility, representation, and aspirational art for all communities. She also generously shares tips for Triangle Area artists who'd like to pursue voiceover work. At some point, I'd like to do that. Would you like to do that? Let me know. Aurelia Belfield has lived all over the country but has made North Carolina her home. A UNC grad, she has found success in the entertainment industry as a music supervisor and voiceover casting director. She is also passionate about making high-quality art accessible to every community and making art that is reflective not only of the diverse communities we already live in, but also the communities we want to see. Hello. Hi. Thank you for being here. Of course. You work as the music and casting supervisor slash sound coordinator for Trailblazer Studios in Raleigh. Trailblazer Studios is an Emmy-winning full-service entertainment production, post-production, and sound studio. (laughs) According to their website, your responsibilities include finding and booking voice talent, developing and nurturing relationships with talent agencies, managing music libraries, and music placement and licensing for short and long-form projects. All of these words sound very intriguing and exciting, but I confess I don't know what they mean. Okay. Would you please break down your responsibilities and talk a little bit about the work you do? Sure. So like you said, I work at Trailblazer Studios in Raleigh. We are literally a full service production and post facility, so we can do it all. We have a development department. We have a production department that will go out and shoot, um, or we have a soundstage that we can shoot on as well. And we have a video post, and we have audio post, and I work in the audio post department and so I handle music supervision which is wrangling composers or licensing individual like retail tracks like the be it pop music or music from an independent musician or something like that or production library music of which there are so many Mm -hmm. Um, but any of that is you would approach me as a client we would figure out the best solution for your project and we would get on with it. And we are fortunate enough to have um, a bunch of composers on staff with us that are also, that are also engineers. Oh, wow! And so we get to just like walk down the hall and say, "Hey, can you can you get this done for us?" And I'm also a voiceover casting director, uh, which basically just means I uh, wrangle voice talent. So I have a huge database of voice talent uh, all over the world at this point that we can contact because the internet is amazing and. People have studios in their homes, and it's so easy for us to sort of track down talent wherever they are, which is great. It also makes the field a lot more competitive, and I'm always, always, always asking actors here in the Triangle to, you know, get into voiceover. It is such an under underlooked revenue stream for a lot of actors, where mm-hmm. there is a lot of competition, but there is also a lot of work, mm-hmm. so... 
So does this mean essentially that someone approaches you to pull together a soundtrack basically for whatever they're doing, whether it's music or voice? Yes, okay. pretty much. And I've like, I always tell people I'm not a sound designer. I um, do not deal with, with sound effects or ambiences. We have awesome sound designers on deck at Trailblazer. I'm also not a, an audio engineer. I don't mix dialogue. I don't mix um, nat sounds or natural ambiences. Um, that is not my forte. I am on the, on the other end of the creative spectrum where I'm mostly working with a client in pre-production mm-hmm. where it's like, what do you, you want your project to sound like? How do you want the sound to tell the story? Mm-hmm. Are people able to answer those questions? It seems like you would get a variety of responses. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do get a variety of responses. People say a lot of things and they don't always say what they mean because people are people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that is where my job sort of comes in and why, and why it exists. So the question could be asked, if you have composers on staff, why can't I, a producer or director or filmmaker, creator, whatever I want to call myself, just talk directly to a composer and you can and if you have composer friends or anything like that that's great but I sort of exist as as a Rosetta Stone for for, to translate sort of what you mean into what you actually want right um so all of us as artists have different ways of processing things and comprehending things and I sort of feel like I sit in that in-between space where I I know music and I enjoy music and I am a huge music nerd, but I am not necessarily specifically a musician mm-hmm. nor a composer. And so sometimes I am coming at it from more of a lay perspective. And since I am coming at it from a lay perspective, I can talk to you as a producer and then relay to the composer what they need to hear because I'm working alongside them. Mm-hmm. Um, and say, okay, I think this is what this means. Like I have a little bit more experience in music and a little bit more experience in like storytelling through music. So I can take whatever weirdy buzzwords somebody at an ad agency wants to give me and translate that into, okay, this needs to be in this key. Hmm. This needs to flow like this. It needs to crescendo. It needs to all, all that fun stuff. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you give us an example? I know you can't probably get very specific but can you give an example of something that you worked on that was just very fulfilling uh there's been a lot of stuff actually um I've worked there for several years now there was a project that we did uh, a couple years ago for Ovation Network it was um a show that we produced and went through our development department found the talent and we shot it ourselves and all that and so it was one of the first really big huge things that we got to to do soup to nuts as a company and the really fun thing was being able to work alongside our uh, producer and showrunner and it was called Southern Uncovered. It was on Ovation Um, and it was about these two brothers, the Lee brothers, Matt and Ted Lee, who are big uh, Southern food historians. Oh, cool. And so they went to different cities all around the South and um, discovered their sort of food histories and like things, fun things to do all under the guise of like, food tours and food histories and that kind of thing and first of all that content was really interesting to me and it was also really neat because we came up with this idea to 
for each city that we went to, we found like um, the local music scene and tried to grab artists uh, from those areas to sort of match the sound to the place. Mm -hmm. And it was so much fun. And it was it was a few years ago. So that was the first time I had ever really gotten to like really take the reins and do it all myself. Mm -hmm. And that was I mean, I and obviously I had I had a ton of help. So I'm not sitting here saying that I'm like an octopus with like eight <laughs> arms and can make phone calls and send emails and do all of this by myself and find these people all by myself. So I had like, we had a team and it was awesome. How did you get into this work? I come from a very music interested family. We're not necessarily a musical family. We're not the Partridge family. <laughs> We're not like, neither of my parents are musicians, but both of my parents really love music and they actually really love theater and the, and the arts in general Mm -hmm. and so I grew up around a lot of music and a lot of storytelling and that became of interest to me as I got older and so when I was in high school I started like doing music for all of our like school plays Mm -hmm. and just did it for fun like because that's just how I connected best with the story Mm -hmm. Um, and I would make I even like as my own character work I would make mixtapes for myself um, and that's how I would find these characters. Mm-hmm. And I did that all through high school just for fun. And I did it, I started doing it in college. And I didn't realize even then that it was a, a job mm-hmm. for people to do. And I was also like, I come from a theater background. I come from a stage background. So I wasn't thinking about jobs you can do right. in, in the film and television world. Mm-hmm. But as I got older and more through my program in college I so I was a drama major but I was a um, screen and stage writing minor so I ended up having to go through partially the comm department mm-hmm. and and dealing with like learning how film works and all that jazz and from that came the preposition of internships like are you going to do an internship where are you going to go are you going to go to LA and I said, if you find me a job in LA, I'll go to LA. But if you find me a job here, that would be great. And that is sort of when I learned of the term music supervisor mm-hmm. and started sort of researching what that was and what those, what the job description was and what the responsibilities were and who did it and all of that kind of thing. And so that's when, like, it was probably junior, sophomore, junior year of college that I started doing it in earnest for mm-hmm. shows like for plays that people would ask me to do mm-hmm. and and also thinking this could be a job that I could definitely do once I got out of school. So this is essentially curating music for a show. Yes. Okay. And so in college what I high school and college what I would do is um I would curate the show end to end. So we would start with house music and say, okay, what like what kind of feeling do we want to curate in our audience? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we want them to feel once they come into the space and sit down? And then that moves into you know your actual cues in the show itself. But it's like this is an experience, and that experience starts when you enter the room. That's really cool that you started thinking this way while you were still in college. That it was an option for you. And when did you start working at Trailblazers? I started working at Trailblazer. Um, 2010 so I did an internship while I was in college but I did not start working with them full-time until about a year 
year and a half after I graduated. Okay. And I imagine that as much prep work as, as you did in college and then in your internships afterwards, you still have learned a lot actually oh, being in the position. Yes. <laughs> but my guess also is that what you learned wouldn't be apparent. Like I wouldn't be able to guess what you learned because I don't know about your job. So what, I don't can even you give me some examples. I don't even know if I can guess what I learned. It's just like <laughs> But you're so much wiser now. <laughs> it's just like it you get thrown into it and problems arise and you solve the problems and right. that's the that's the biggest thing. I I learned how to use different operating systems and what we had in college. You know, I learned how to use Pro Tools. I learned how to use um Avid Media Composer. Mm-hmm. Um I learned a lot of it is just like interpersonal. Right. Where, like you learn how to talk to people and you learn how to read people and you learn how to ask the right questions to get the answers that you need. Mm-hmm. If I came to you, what question might you ask me? I would say, you know, what is your project? You would explain to me what your project is. Okay, so what do we want this project to sound like? And if you say, I don't know, I could say, well, you've given me X, Y, and Z. I'm thinking we should this kind of vibe and this is the time period and this is the audience that you seem to want to capture and then that turns into a dialogue of like yes I like these ideas but not so much these ideas I like these instruments but not so much these instruments I like the way that these artists sound or the way that these other projects sound but I want mine to feel different in this way Hmm. And then you have a database that you go to where you can type in some keywords or something like that? Lots of stuff. So um, with production music libraries, there are a million and one of them all over the place. So from that, like we cultivate relationships with them. We learn whose strengths, like what, what, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. Or not necessarily weaknesses, but who has what strengths mm-hmm. is what we focus on the most. And so if if you really need a classic rock sound, I know that this production library is very, very good at that. And I can go to them and put in some keywords and and listen through some stuff and curate a playlist for you. Or I can dig around and find artists that are either unsigned or signed. Like we have relationships with record labels and publishers as well. So it depends on the budget. Or I can go to one of our composers and say, hey, I know that you're really good at this style of music, uh, and I think that you would be a really great fit for this project, so let's do some original music for this. And does it work the same way for the voiceovers? Similar. So you come to me, you say, I have this project, I need a voice for it, these are the specs, like this is this is how old, This I need it to be a male or a female, or it doesn't matter. Um, this is the audience, this is the product, or this is the project. Mm-hmm. And that is when I do have my own database and can go in and say, click, click, click. Okay, you need somebody that's this age and this gender or neither gender, or they they need to be local because we you don't have a budget to do a bunch of like over-the-air mm-hmm. streaming options, um, or they can live anywhere, or you really just care about what time zone they're in. Mm-hmm. Or they have to speak a certain language or speak a certain dialect, and we find that person for you. We find we hopefully find several options for you. We present them to you as either as demo reels that they already have, that we already have, mm-hmm. or you give us a little blurb of your script, and they read it, and um, we give you those, and you can say, I want this one or this one, or I want none of them go back to the drawing board. This is how I feel now. 
this is this is what I didn't like about this, and this is what needs to change. Now I know what I want. It's not that. It's not that. It's like, and now I know what I want, and it's none of this. Right, right. How long might you work with a client, and how many projects are you handling at one time? It just depends. It depends. Like some things are just like a day or two, and some things can take months. It just it it depends on their timeline. It depends on where we're coming in in that timeline. So if I'm coming into something during pre-production before anything is even shot, that can be weeks or months. Mm-hmm. And I, in the case of like documentaries or things that take a little bit longer, that can be years. Because mm-hmm. we had uh, one project that we, we did in-house as well uh, called Twice Born on PBS, which is actually what we won our first Emmy for, which was fantastic. Uh, but that, just by the nature of it being a documentary and a med- and a medical documentary at that, it took years to do. It took about two, two years wow. to to totally complete. Mm-hmm. And you know, I come in at different points during the production cycle, mm-hmm. so I can be really involved during pre-production, and then you go off and you shoot for months and months, and you don't, you know, you're not editing, you're not in post, so you don't need me. And then you go into post and you've just started post. And so then I'm giving you some more things to edit with. And then maybe I don't, maybe that's the end for me. Like maybe I've given you everything that you need. You don't need anything else. You, you're all set to go. Or maybe you come across a stumbling block. You have to come back and say, hmm, I have this scene that I'm working on. And this is what I need for it. And, and it's not here. It's not something that we've already established or something that we've already pulled so we need something more. We need something different. Mm-hmm. So when you're working in pre-production, are, is your role to prepare for what they might need in post, or is it to inspire the people who are making the product? The real answer is it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. But in the projects that I have done in the last several years, it is me trying to preempt what their needs are Mm -hmm. so that they have them when they go into post. Mm -hmm. What do you like the most about your job? Oh dear. I mean, I love, I love listening to music. I love listening to music. I love problem solving. Mm -hmm. I love it when somebody can come to me with a a creative issue and we can sort of suss it out. Like I really enjoy that a lot. I love um, introducing new artists to projects. I think that's a lot of fun. And it's really satisfying to, like, if you can really nail exactly what it is that your client is asking for. I like making people happy. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is one of my... One of the things you need. Yeah. <laughs> it's the thing that I need. It's a weird, like, Freudian, Abraham Maslow hierarchy of needs. I need to make people It's on happy. your pyramid. Yeah. It is, it is firmly at the base of my pyramid. I have only ever worked for nonprofit mm-hmm. arts organizations. I've worked for some for-profit organizations that were very businessy, like real businessy. Um, but you are in an interesting position because it is entertainment, arts and entertainment, and it is a for-profit organization. Yes. And I'm really interested in your point of view about, about the culture that you're working in and also what Nonprofits might learn mm. from our for-profit siblings. Well, for one, we are very, very lucky to have the success that we've had. 
Um, that's not like a super common thing across the board in in the arts and entertainment industry at all. Mm. And it's really not common when you are in a smaller market like we are. Mm -hmm. So I, I consider myself like top tier lucky mm -hmm. to have fallen into this position. And uh, I think one big thing to remember as we talk about this is this is a small company. There's only about 50 people that work in my office mm -hmm. um and we have a like a very very deep bench of freelancers for different jobs mm -hmm. but the core is it's about 50 folks yeah that's, that's mean that's about it mm -hmm. um and so everybody i think it's operations wise it can be very similar to the nonprofit world where everybody is doing multiple jobs mm -hmm. so it's not the idea that we're a big corporation and everybody is just cogs mm -hmm. in a machine and you get plugged in and you do your one task and that's it like everybody is juggling a lot of different things at one time and I think that sort of scrappy attitude is one of the reasons why uh, everybody seems to enjoy working there so much because mm -hmm. nobody feels tied down to like oh, I come in and I have to do the same thing right. every single day so, like, never lose that. Like, never lose that sort of desire to, like, want to do good work. Mm -hmm. And we just happen to be in the lucky place to be able to make money doing good work. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't be afraid to ask for favors. Don't be afraid to get into it with interns. Nonprofits come to us looking for assistance sometimes. And the biggest thing we could say is, like, network build like you're gonna hear me talk about community for this whole like hour probably right great but like build a community that because that, that's what we do like that's all we're doing mm -hmm. is we have built the only difference with us is we have built this community all of these people are lucky to be salaried and so we all get to be in one place at the same time all day mm -hmm. if you're in a nonprofit, everybody's not necessarily in the same building all day mm -hmm. but it's the same idea of do you know somebody who can do this thing right then go to that person right um find, or find somebody that can do that thing and i think in the triangle in general there's a lot of opportunities to network especially within the nonprofit world because there are a lot of nonprofits that are centered here and like work together mm -hmm. and work with each other like we've only been around for like 15 years in the iteration that we're in now and the 15 years of success happened because we partnered with other people when we weren't afraid to partner with other people and say okay well we can do this thing for you and you need this thing done and you can do this thing for us, and we need this thing done, so let's make this a symbiotic relationship. Right. I wonder if it's also something about thinking both things, that you can make art and have a business. I feel yes. like often with nonprofit organizations, there's a reluctance to see yourself as a business, a business and function in that way. Well, here's the thing. I think that ideological purity is fake. <laughs> 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 I don't believe All right, in say it. more about that. Yeah, I, I don't believe in it. And I mean, I shouldn't say it's fake. I'm sure it's a very real thing, but I don't think it is sustainable. I mean, this is a capitalist society. And unfortunately, as much as a lot of us may not want to, we have to exist mm -hmm. in this society. And, you know, for whatever culmination of reasons we want to 
succeed and be comfortable and and have all of the things in our lives that we want Mm -hmm. and there are ways that we have to sort of make that happen i mean as a business we do a lot of i mean you've seen our website Mm -hmm. other people look at our website we do a lot of work and we do a really wide range of work and you might like some of that you might not like the other parts doesn't matter Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't think we've been one to just completely throw ideology out the window like we're not going to go all the way into some like i don't know like a creepy hate video or something like that but i but people have very strong opinions about art and people have very strong opinions about entertainment and they have very strong opinions about what is good art Mm -hmm. and what is valuable entertainment and what is not and i think that with the great breadths of breadth of work that we've done we're hitting all of those points mm-hmm. for some people and that is necessary i mean as a business that is necessary but i think that we have found ways to do that um in ways that that keep everybody fulfilled so we do a lot of reality television and some people may feel one way or the other about reality television i think it's great um but people might have opinions about reality television but what we do is we do our best work regardless right of what the genre is and that's how we sort of keep our ideological goals in mind because i'm going to, regardless of what station this is airing on or what genre of film or tv this is i'm going to do my best work Mm -hmm. and if it's a genre that you may feel sort of icky about for one reason or another if i can go in and elevate this genre then that's a success for me for a long time a lot of our reality shows had all completely original composed music and it was all coming from a place of like real creativity from real musicians Mm -hmm with like real instruments and they worked really hard for everything that they did. And some of those shows, you know, won awards for the original compositions that that we did for them. And so I can't say that, well, this is a reality show because it's 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 art. Right. Somebody worked really hard on that and somebody shot it really well and somebody went in and, you know, did their best work. Like mm-hmm. an artist, at every stage of this, there was an artist that did their best work mm-hmm. or made the attempt to do their best work regardless of what time constraints they may have had or what budget constraints they may have had. So I think that all of these genres deserve to be respected. Right, right. And I think that for a nonprofit, and especially for an arts nonprofit or something like a not-for-profit theater, you do have to think about that sometimes. Sometimes you are going to have to do the shows that people pay money to come and see. That's right. And that's tough sometimes if you feel really strongly about not doing that. But you also have to think about the how can I mold this and shape this and make this the kind of art that I want to do. Right. Because there are ways to do that. And then everybody for them, it's a compromise. Everybody is a little bit happy. So people are coming to see a title that they recognize and that they will enjoy. And you, as the creator of this project, are being are able to put it together in a way 
that feels important to you and, and makes it a story that you want to tell. Where do you go from here in this position? Is there a clear career path or do you just do more projects and bigger projects? It's more projects and bigger projects. Okay. I, I mean, I'm lucky in the sense that I didn't start out like I'm a PA and then I move up here and I do this. Like, that's great. And I, I was a music, I was a music supervisor out of the gate. Hmm. That is a lucky, lucky thing. I wasn't somebody's assistant. I started my career doing my job. Um, and so that means that my title doesn't necessarily change, but the level at which I'm working does. Mm -hmm. So I get to do more projects. I get to do bigger projects. And the fact that I'm with a small company allows me to grow while they grow, which I think is awesome. And that's exactly what I wanted when I was looking at career paths for myself. Like I didn't want to be a cog in a machine and I didn't want to robotically move up any sort of ladder to sort of emptily get to the top and say, well, I'm here right, <laughs> and that's, right. and that's it. I'm also not a competitive person. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of super scrappy sort of this person's going to take my job thing that you can have in bigger markets did not appeal to me right. in the least. Like I, I want to do my job and I want to do my job well. And I want to whatever accolades or anything that I get, I want on my own merit. Mm -hmm. um, and not because I kept somebody else from, from getting them. Mm -hmm. And it's the same deal with uh, like as an actor. So when you're young and you're like in high school and you're in college, you, the whole world is like, you can't wait. You can't, everything, everything, everything is possible and, and everything is a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and the closer you get to having to deal with like the reality of like bills and other people that are not your friends um, or other people that are not your mentors in your department at your college, those realities start setting in of what I am willing to sacrifice and what I am willing to put up with mm -hmm. and to deal with and what I did not want is I didn't want to get to a point where I had to do shows that I didn't want to do so I could pay my light bill. And so I always knew that I was going to have, from that point forward, I knew that I was going to have another job. Right. Um, and I said, if I'm going to have another job, I want to have another career. I want two careers and I want them to be equally as important to me. Mm -hmm. and, which, and that's exactly what I ended up doing. But I said, I don't want to get to the point where I'm just taking roles that I don't want to because I have to get a check. Sounds like the job that you have during the day would probably tick a lot of the creative boxes. Yes. Do you find time or interest in doing other performing in the evenings? Oh, I do. I love it. I, I mean, I did, it, I did it for a really long time. The mm -hmm. only reason I'm not doing it now is just the nature of the of the, the, the cycle yeah right so right. it's just not my time right there are some folks that have approached me in the last several years but the timing wasn't right mm -hmm. I don't have kids and I don't have a partner but I do have like I'm an only child my parents just me my mom and my dad and so they're very important to me and there's some things that I just can't give up right to um to do shows so like in the, like the summer is really bad time for right. me uh because I'm always at home because everybody's birthdays 
are right in, within a month of each other. Like my mom's birthday, my dad's birthday, and my birthday are all within a month of each other. Right. And when it's just the three of you, it birthdays become very important. Sure. Um, and it took a long time for me to get to that point. Like it took several years, like being out of college and like being out in the world to say, you know what, I do need to value my time. Because I like didn't take vacations, I didn't go anywhere, and I didn't do anything. Because I was like, "But what if somebody calls me? What if I get a job? What? What if? What if? What if?" And finally, I was like, "You know what? I this is not sustainable. Right? right. <laughs> like, I can't live like this." But otherwise, I mean, on the large scale, no, I haven't been working because it just isn't my time to work. You do still have space in your life for yes. that. I will probably always leave space in my life for that. Wonderful. It's funny how we have to go through that time period of saying yes to everything mm-hmm. until we get to being able to stand up and say, no, some things I have to say no to and some things I have to prioritize. And it's such a, well, let me speak for myself. It was a painful process it to is. arrive at It that, really is. But you got to get there. Yeah. It, I was like, I, I have to have a life. And and it's it's the slow process of like growing up and – I think like doing this in college, everything was fun all the time because everybody was your friend. Right. And so it was, and nobody was making any money and everything was just for fun. Mm-hmm. And so that was, at least for me, that was, that's, that, that was my extracurricular. Like that I did shows nonstop all year long and that's what I was used to doing. And so when I got out of college, I was used to that sort of hyper rigorous mm-hmm. cycle. And eventually I had to be like, hold on. Like this is, first of all, this is not sustainable, like physically. Right. Like I need to take a break. You mentioned earlier uh, about triangle folks who might want to do voiceover work for people who are interested in pursuing that. Do you have recommendations for them? Uh, sure. Uh, you can always email me and I can give you direct recommendations. Right. But there are several people in the area who do voiceover coaching who are great. Okay. Um, there are no dedicated voiceover talent agents here. But if you have a talent agent, that's great. If you don't, you can always just contact me directly. It's not a requirement. Don't feel like it is. Voiceover demos are kind of important. Fortunately... They are not like like television reels where it's clips of shows that you've done. I mean, obviously, in an ideal world, um, it would be small clips of, of work that you've done. But when you don't have any work, the fun thing about voiceover is you can, you can write some scripts. If you have some friends who can write some scripts, there are entire books of demo scripts that you can use and sort of cobble one together. I would suggest, I mean, you can do this at home if you have, like, a fancy setup like we have here. But I would suggest, like, shelling out the the dough to, to go to a professional and do it just because you can keep it longer. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, you have to think about it like a headshot. It is an investment, but that's, that is exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's going to be several hundred dollars, but it is an investment the same way that your headshot is an investment. So it sounds like... Voiceover coach is a good idea. It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Doing some research is a good idea. Yes. Getting together a demo reel good idea. is a good idea. Because now everything works so fast. Uh, people are not necessarily doing custom reads of scripts all the time. So having a demo reel that I can just like whip out and say, oh, I know that this person fits this description. 
here you go listen to them mm-hmm. you're gonna get seen more just but it's the same idea with on-camera work and with stage work is you have your headshot and so if you have a professional headshot that's all like shiny and great uh, it's much easier to give to any director or any client that comes through and say I think this person is a good idea right as opposed to a snapshot or a Polaroid of yourself where I could use that and there may be a person that comes through and is like I, you know what? Let's take a chance. I'm willing to chance it. Great. Mm-hmm. Like that does happen. I'm not going to like front and act like it doesn't, mm-hmm. but it does not happen all the time. And the people I'm dealing with most of the time every day are very busy. If I send them something that's not at least 85% up to snuff, right. they're not going to consider it. Right. So get your professional self together yes. before you try to go out there and do this. And if that, I mean, and if you just have what you have, that's fine. I will absolutely accept it just know that you will not be able to be submitted for as much work as you would otherwise but if you just want to get your foot in the door and just sort of get started that's totally fine but it's the same deal like like headshots is if you have what you have you work with what you have until you can get something else but you have an awareness that if the only photo you have on actors access is a selfie that you took, like, in a Burger King bathroom. Eight years ago. Yeah. Then maybe some jobs will come through, but probably not. Words to live by. (laughs) (laughs) That's all really helpful. Very good advice. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) I would like to pivot a little bit. But also don't send me your headshots. Like, I don't need them. Yes. No headshots. Don't send them. I don't send them to anybody, and I also don't look at them. I don't care about what you look like. I'm sure you're beautiful. <laughs> but you don't need to see their face. I don't need to. And, and I also, I, I will probably get into this later, but I also don't send headshots specifically because I don't want any sort of biases when casting a project. I just need voices, and it's about whatever voice fits the project the best. It's not about who's the most attractive mm-hmm. or who is of a certain race because my thing is if you don't specify then I'm going to give you everybody and Mm -hmm. I don't want headshots to get in the way of for some reason this client had this image in their mind and you don't fit that and then since there's this like dissonance Mm -hmm. then you end up not getting a job that you deserve right because people can't always once they have a visual they can't they stop listening sometimes exactly right Well, let's get into that because one of the things I noticed when I read your bio online and you sent me a bio and various other things that I've read about you (laughs) uh, in my research, all good things, is that community is really important to you. You mentioned the importance of representing diverse communities that we live in and would like to see. Mm -hmm the accessibility of high-quality art to every community. Would you say a little bit more about why these issues of accessibility, representation, community building are important to you? Sure. Community is all we have, right? So on this earth, like what what we have are person-to-person communications and relationships. So the communities that we build are what we have. Our family is a community, our a friend group is a community or larger community of actors or to people in your neighborhood like 
communities are sort of ev everything. Having art that is reflective of one, the communities that actually exist, mm -hmm. and two, are aspirational in ways that they need to be because we have this this history of communities not being well represented. Uh, and, you know, I want to see on stage what I want to see, like, in my neighborhood. And the amazing thing about art is that it it humanizes people um, and it normalizes people. So if you've never seen a certain color of person or a person with a certain disability or any sort of type of person before like art art is that gateway to understand like this is a person mm -hmm. this is a person who has feelings i relate to this person because i relate to the story and that's from like tiny peekaboo toddler you know I, what am i looking at in the mirror this is a baby i am a baby right right so children's television is a great example where you look at something like sesame street that does a really hardcore job of trying to make sure everybody is represented because at that age is like okay this person that looks like my mom like if my mom is a white woman this person that looks like my mom is a person like this is a mom mm -hmm. or this person that looks like my dad who is a white man this is my dad this is my dad and this is what a person is mm -hmm. but you know this brown person is also a person this person in a hijab is also a person this person this kid who has two moms, their moms are both moms and their moms are still people. Right. This person who has no arms is a person. This person who's deaf is, is a person. Mm -hmm. And when we don't, I, that's uh, some of the problems that we're having now is that people don't get exposed to other people or they don't get exposed to, they don't get exposed to other people at all or they don't get exposed to other people in positive ways, in ways in which they can identify them as a person. Mm -hmm. I think art is just is such a huge part of doing that. Like even if you totally missed the boat when you were a kid, like there's no Sesame Street <laughs> or, or anything like that. You didn't watch TV at all or something. I don't mm -hmm. know what. If you go into a theater or you go into a movie theater and you watch a story that's really that really affects you and you empathize with that person or you identify with that person and that person looks or sounds different from you, it's going to shift your mindset just a little bit. And maybe that little bit is enough right. to really like make some changes in your life. Cause we all have like crappy knapsacks to sort of unpack of mm -hmm. just stuff mm -hmm. and stuff that we thought was okay. That's not actually okay. And stuff that's just, informed by nothing because right. well, I never met a person like that before. Right. So I don't know how to feel about this person because I've never met a person like this before. Mm -hmm. Art is universal. It's also not, I mean, there's also a whole conversation to be had about like showing other stories from other perspectives. And, but I think, I think it all comes down to art being universal, especially on the stage when you can be in a room mm -hmm. with somebody and sort of, feel that energy and and feel those emotions i think film is wonderful and i th but i think it's a different medium and i think it works differently mm -hmm. and so when i think of film and diversity in film it's about getting to as many people as hmm. as you can mm -hmm. um and that like that's about access but from the stage side it's like getting people in that room so they can like feel 
feel those feelings because even if it's a story about somebody who has nothing to do with you and that perspective is 180 different from yours like you have to sit in it and and feel those feelings like that is a universal thing right right i just think that's really important i think like i think that's the most important thing is to understand other people Mm. and i think that's the building block of like creating healthy societies Mm -hmm. it's just like i can look at you and i can understand you or i can at the very least take take myself out of myself for a second and listen and watch and I think that we get caught up in this idea that of universality outside of the outside of the emotions in the text itself or it's like well this story is universal so we can sort of we think about it in a vacuum Mm -hmm. and so we say this story is universal so it doesn't matter quote air quotes it doesn't matter who is on the stage but if everybody on the stage is the same and looks the same and also i mean to get down to brass tacks it's we don't exist in a vacuum there is an entire history surrounding all of art about you know race and whiteness and colorism Mm -hmm. and heteronormativity and you know like a christian hierarchy that that informs what we see every day and when we can force ourselves to break out of that and to actually have art that is reflective of our communities at large Mm -hmm. where it's like everybody that lives here does not look the same and does not believe the same thing and does not does not choose to live the same way as everybody else but also in an aspirational sense of I want this to be as diverse as possible I want this to reach as many people as possible but I also don't want to do that in an empty way mm-hmm. where it's just like I'm just going to do this so I can say that I, I everything needs to be deliberate right like I think being deliberate is really important and so I think it goes both ways where I don't want everybody on my stage to look the same if they don't have to, but I also am not just casting things willy-nilly because just to say that I did. Right. I love the idea of this because I feel like it empowers artists in a way that we don't always think of ourselves as having power. Mm -hmm. So we can... It's acknowledging that art can change people and that we have the power to do that changing if we are intentional. I really like the tie between the art and the communities we want to create. Mm -hmm. I think that that is something that gets lost in the way that we often make art. It feels like we're making art at the community instead of making art to prove, transform, revitalize, whatever verb you want to put in there mm-hmm. our community right and i like that idea very much it's, it's all very sesame street like these are the people in your yeah, neighborhood right. like yeah it's not complicated it's, but we we've moved away from this have. idea and yeah. so i think like being intentional and and sometimes that's hard because we all have generally speaking there is no one person who is completely free of any piece of this hierarchy or of any hierarchy that exists right right? so i am 
a woman, but I am, and I am a black woman, but I am able-bodied. You know, I, I came from a middle-class background. I went to college. I, I come from like a Judeo-Christian background, like all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I consider myself a cisgender, you know, heterosexual woman. And so I, I am still part of this system mm-hmm. and there's still things that I need to be aware of and be intentional about when I make my art. I can't just throw myself in there and say, well, guys, I'm a black woman. And so that means whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, it's something that we all have to work on. There's no one person who is immune from every single solitary type of privilege. Right. It's unpack. It's the unpacking of the knapsack, right? So, when you do a sh- if I do a show, this is why I don't believe in colorblind casting. I do very much believe in color conscious casting. I think that when you say when you take something, it's like okay, I know that I want my ingenue to be a black woman. Okay, great, great, that's fine. Then let's say if you cast your leading love interest man, if he is a white man, then this is an interracial relationship, and we all know about loving versus virginia and this is all great and progressive and wonderful and fine but what if we were we took that intention a step further and we said well you know we have this asian actor who's really strong who's just as strong what if we did that and then we sort of took whiteness out of the central equation of of our love interest story that we have in our show and then suddenly you have created this radical piece. Right. <laughs> if the actor happens to be an out trans man, you have, without doing anything, mm-hmm. and we're if we're taking every one of these actors as phenomenal and is, is otherwise a good fit, mm-hmm. you know, you've done nothing, and you've all of a sudden made this radical piece of art. And I think, people might have a problem with me using the word radical, Mm. but we're way behind the line here. So sometimes things that seem like small steps can be radical changes, Mm -hmm. especially when you think about art and the arts communities and what like patrons come to see and what they have seen before. And you think that this is something as simple as this is, they've never seen this before. Yeah. I think we make a lot of assumptions about our audience and where they're coming from and what they've experienced and what they need. And it's, that's a whole can of worms. And on that note, I want to talk about a piece that I witnessed as an audience member that you were in that I think is an excellent example of some of the things that you're talking about. And that was a piece Created, written by Shaughnessy Webb with perhaps the best title ever. (laughs) (laughs) The title of this performance piece is I Love My Hair When It's Good and Then Again When It Looks Defiant and Impressive. You all had two productions of this. Once in 2012 and again in 2014. I believe one of the reasons that it was remounted was because it was so successful that people wanted to bring this back. The press for both productions was strongly positive. And again, I witnessed this as an audience member. It seemed like a really powerful experience for the audience, the community, 
and the artists involved. So before we talk about why you think this touched a chord with people and the community and perhaps why it did with you, I want to give a little synopsis in case people didn't see the show. Mm -hmm. Here's a brief synopsis. The piece, I Love My Hair, was about two cousins, Genevieve, who you played, Mm -hmm. and Moni, and the family of women who love them as they come of age together in the South, a South too small to contain their curiosities. I Love My Hair integrated interview text, poetry, original music, movement, and video to explore family, community, race, class, politics, and identity. I have a quote here from the Indie then it was called the Independent Weekly, in 2012. I Love My Hair received a five-star review, and the quote is, As we watched, Webb's meticulously researched and remembered script gently and honestly traced along a series of carefully selected fault lines within African-American history and culture. At the same time, I Love My Hair lovingly embraced, validated, and ultimately united in a new understanding of the life experiences of a community long divided. Why do you think this piece touched people the way it did? Well, I think that it goes back to sort of the universality of of humanity, mm-hmm. right? So there was a lot of family dynamics, and there was a lot of coming of age uh, stories that happened uh, during the show that I think just resonated with people in general. I think, um, you know, outside of myself, the performers were phenomenal. Um, I think the writing was phenomenal mm-hmm. um i think it was directed really well and so i think it was just it was just good good art at its core mm-hmm. um and i think that for a lot of folks that came to see the show again it seems like something really simple but it was something that was really radical at the time because it was something that people had never seen before mm-hmm. like it's not a common thing to have a stage full of five black women sort of bearing their their souls and their interpersonal drama and their growth mm-hmm. um that just even in the year of our lord 2012 like that was not something that was happening all the time right and i mean i think it that's why it affected me so much is like we and i think i speak for everybody that was involved in the show where it was like you finally got to be you feel like you were heard and you felt like you were seen and that's something that we had never really gotten before and especially not in this community on this scale Mm. and I think that's something that people tend to forget about especially when we're sort of sitting in our various and sundry privileges it those are things that you don't think about right is that oh wow you know this this person's never been seen this person has never been heard this person has never been made to feel like a whole and complete person whose journey through this world matters. Mm-hmm. And I think that having it done at Man Bites was something that was very important to the community at large. But it's also like these types of stories don't get to be told in places that are considered part of the mainstream of the arts communities, even here. Mm-hmm. It's not often that you see stories like that happen mm-hmm. and the unfortunate and when i say we sit in our privileges it's like no it's it's fortunately here it's not uncommon to see a, a show that's all women like that is a common thing in this bubble that we live in 
but to see a show that is all black women exclusively and talking about their experiences as black women and how it has affected their lives is next to unheard of. Right. Particularly an original piece. Exactly. Pulled together by local people. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, you know, down from New York. Yeah. And well, that's a big problem with, <laughs> with, with that and the way that we talk about th these things. So when I say that I want, you know, art for the community and I want that art to be accessible, I think we have a great and deep well of talent here. And I think that it's not exclusive just to the Triangle. I think there's a lot of places who have great and deep and wide wells of talent. And I think that the way that we approach regional theater and the way that we approach professional theater and the way that we approach local actors stifles some of that power and creativity for some reason there's this idea like i've seen a lot of shows in new york and i've seen a lot of shows here and a lot of them are very much comparable as far as talent on the stage mm -hmm. um and i think we need to find ways to get out of this idea that if something's not coming down from New York or coming in from LA that that means it's somehow less than right and not as valuable right that was beautifully said <laughs> I'm so glad that you said that that is at the core of the reason that I started this podcast and you said that so beautifully so thank you <laughs> you're welcome thank you so much thank you this was so here. much fun I loved having this conversation with you and it's been a long time coming. So we will be in touch and I'll put lots of links in the show notes. Artist Soapbox is brought to you by the Soapboxers, official patrons of Artist Soapbox podcast. You can support the podcast via our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash artist soapbox. For information about today's episode and more, go to artist soapbox.org. Thank you, Aurelia, and we're out. Mm -hmm.